Next week, we'll start our spring series that will be on the Gospel of Matthew, but that means this week we have an open Sunday. So I decided to do something a little different. We're going to do a Q&A. And so I asked for questions on Facebook and Twitter this week and got a lot of questions. I got lots of questions on the Bible, on theology, on spiritual life, on relationships, on parenting, on car repair. I got more questions than I can answer. And so I'm going to try to do the best I can to answer as many of them as possible. We may try to do a podcast or something later this week of the ones that we don't have time to get to. But I'm going to try to get through as many as I can. But I I need to warn you, I'm not going to be comprehensive. Almost every question I was asked is worthy of its own sermon. And and I can't go that deep. All I can do is scratch the surface this morning. So I'm not going to be comprehensive. I also, for lack of time, I can't share all perspectives. So what I'm going to share this morning is simply my own opinions, my own answers, and it's not necessarily reflective of what other pastors at Grace would say. Okay, so I'm just going to try to walk you through as many of these as I can and give you Blake's own answers. So let's jump right in. First question from an old friend of mine named Chris. He asks, can I negate positive steering roll radius with positive offset wheels? Great question. I hear it all the time. And the answer, Chris, is yes, you absolutely can. Positive steering roll radius, or scrub, is that little distance at the bottom of the diagram, the line between the center of the contact patch of the tire and the steering axis of your front suspension. The larger it is, the harder your car is to turn as it goes down the highway. You can fix that by choosing a wheel with more positive offset, making your car easier to turn. So there you go. That sadly is the only automotive question that I'm going to answer this morning. I could have done that all day. But we're going to move on to politics because that was by far the largest section of questions that were submitted to me. So we're going to talk about politics, poverty, race, and immigration. So let's jump right in. The first question on this subject that I'd like to talk about, Jason asked me, what does the Bible say about immigrants, both documented and undocumented? Well, great question. Great question. I know it's, it's on all of our minds because of the particular season we are living in. In the Bible, you're not going to find the word immigrant or immigration. Instead, you're going to find words like foreigners or aliens. That's the the terminology the Bible uses. And when you study those passages, you find there is no division in Scripture between legal and illegal immigration or documented or undocumented immigrants because there were no categories like that in the ancient world. You will also find very little guidance for nations setting policy. The Bible tells us very little about what immigration policy should be. And since I am not by any means an expert on immigration policy, I'm not going to talk about that this morning. I'm not qualified to weigh in on that. It's incredibly complex. So I will leave that to the experts. What I am qualified to talk about and what the Bible spends a great deal of time talking about is how we as individuals and as a church should treat immigrants. 
Whether they're legal or illegal, documented or undocumented, the Bible is very clear about how we as individuals and as a family should treat immigrants in our community. And so I'm going to give you four biblical principles about how to think about this issue of immigration. First principle comes to us by way of James 1.19. I'm going to reference this verse a lot this morning. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. First biblical principle when it comes to how we are to interact with the issue of immigration is we as followers of Christ must be slow to speak and quick to listen. The first time I was asked about this question, I was a relatively new pastor. I was leading a small group and a young college girl got very emotional. This issue came up and she started crying and she proceeded to tell us about her family. Her parents crossed over illegally. They left a country where they were afraid for their lives. There's a great deal of crime and a great deal of poverty. And so they came to America illegally and they did the best they could to raise their kids to know Jesus and walk with him to provide for their kids. And what this young woman asked me with tears in her eyes is she said, why do you white evangelicals care so much more about a wall than you care about my parents? That hit me deep. What I realized in that moment is that immigration is not just a political issue. It is a deeply personal issue for millions of men, women, and children, all of whom are made in the image of God and many of whom are our brothers and sisters in Christ. This issue is deeply personal to them. It affects them every day. Many of them live in constant fear of deportation. And none of them came over here because their lives were easy. No one hops in the back of a semi-trailer or crosses a desert on foot for the fun of it. They were all escaping pain. So their lives are full of suffering and we are foolish if we just spout off our opinions. If we are quick to share our political opinions rather than quick to listen to their stories, to their suffering, to get to see life through their eyes. So the first biblical principle to you when you are interacting with someone on the immigration issue, be slow to speak and quick to hear. Listen to life through their eyes. Understand their pain and their hurt. That will help you when you do open your mouth to speak in a helpful way. Second principle that we get about immigration from scripture is a paradigm shift. Do you realize that you are all immigrants? Every single one of you tells us this in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul. That's the word immigrants. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then the United States is not your home. You are an immigrant. Your home is heaven. And so that leads to a third biblical principle. As followers of Jesus, we need to care much more about increasing the size of heaven, our true home, than about making America great again. We need to prioritize wisely. What matters most by an infinite margin is evangelism. That we are sharing the love of Christ in word and deed to everyone we meet, including immigrants, regardless of whether they're here legally or illegally. Leave that to the government to figure out and sort out. That's not our business. Our business is to love all immigrants, to welcome all of them with open arms and share with them the love of Christ in both word and deed. We owe that to every immigrant in our community, regardless of how they got here. Now, if the government decides that they get to stay, great. Let's invite them to be part of this family. 
so that they can know God with us. If the government decides that they have to go home, well, let's make sure that they see the love of Christ from us before they go. Let's do everything we can to help them to feel loved and cared for by the people of God. Okay, so our priority should be evangelism. When I think of immigration, I think of it very differently than most people. I love it. It's free evangelism. You kidding me? People are coming from all over to us. I don't have to hop on a plane and go fly somewhere. They come here and I get to share with them the love of Jesus Christ. That's incredible. I love it when they come because my job on earth is to share the love of Jesus in word and deed, not worry about the issue of immigration. Leave that to others to figure out. Now, when it is time for you to vote, And and you're going to vote, and and your vote is going to carry consequences on immigration policy. How should you vote as a follower of Christ? Well, my primary piece of advice for you is that we need to remember when we walk into the voting booth, we do not get a free pass to be selfish. When we vote as followers of Christ, we are commanded to vote selflessly. You must vote for the people and policies that best align with the truth and love of God for the whole world. You are not allowed to vote for self-interest. Now, that principle is going to lead some of you to vote for conservative immigration policies and some of you to vote for liberal immigration policies because immigration is incredibly complex and you can make arguments either way. The key is we need to remember it's not ultimately a political issue. It's ultimately an issue about us as a church and as individuals opening our arms wide to every immigrant we meet, whether they are documented or not. Our primary concern is to share with all of them the love of Jesus Christ, both in word and deed. And so that's what the Bible tells us. Don't worry so much about the political issue. Focus on what you can do to be the hands and feet of Christ to every immigrant in this community. My prayer is that Bryan College Station will be a place where when immigrants come here, whether they're legal or not, they would know the love of Christ through Grace Bible Church. That's our job. Okay, next question. The poverty question. What does the Bible teach about caring for the poor and how does this apply to us as Christians and citizens? Matt asked this question. Another great question. And similar to the immigration question, another one where we're not going to find a lot of direct guidance in Scripture about the policies that government should have. So I'm not going to talk to you about welfare or about Medicaid or food stamps. Those are incredibly complex issues. They are not simple. I, I choose to leave that to the experts who do the research who really study it deeply. So I'm not going to speak about that because I'm not qualified to. What I can speak about is how we as individuals and as a church should treat the poor. That one's fairly clear. The Bible says a lot about that. It tells us in the book of Luke chapter 12, this is Jesus speaking. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide yourselves purses that do not wear out, a treasure in heaven that never decreases, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Jesus is very clear. This is repeated often. We are commanded to care for the poor. We are morally obligated to care for the poor. And here's the key. Regardless of how they got poor, there are no means tests or drug tests or immigration checks or background checks in Scripture of the poor. You're just commanded to care for poor people, period. To give to them no matter what. You're commanded to give to them even if they might take your gift for granted or use it for bad things. 
That's something that always goes through my mind. I'm an engineer. I'm super cynical. I always wonder, is this poor person going to take my gift and abuse my charity? Are they going to use it to buy something bad like alcohol? Well, actually, that could have happened in the Old Testament and the New Testament too. Alcohol was around then. They could have abused your charity. You know what? The Bible never worries about that. The Bible says that that's between that person and God. He'll figure that out. Our job is to give. We're commanded to give even if our gift could be abused. And here's the key when we think about that. What if this poor person abuses my gift? Well, do I realize that I abuse a gift every day? See, I've been given a lot of charity by God. I have my health. I have these nice clothes. I have my intellect. I, I have all of the financial resources. I'm a wealthy man. Do I deserve any of that? Nope. Guess what I do almost every day? I use that charity, that grace God has given me, and I use it for sinful and selfish things. I abuse grace all the time, and yet God doesn't take it away from me. So why should I take charity away from the poor just because some of them abuse it from time to time? Okay, so we are morally obligated to give to those who are poor. Now, when you do give, you are also commanded to use the intellect God has given you to give wisely. It's probably not wise to give cash to a drug addict. That's not going to work out well for them. You need to think about what's best for them. You are commanded to help them, though. So you need to find a way to help that person wisely. You're also not supposed to give away everything you have so that you can no longer care for your family. It's wise to have some money left over to care for your family because we're commanded in 1 Timothy 5 to care for the financial needs of our families. So what I challenge people to do is you need to, you need to pray and you need to pray as a family and arrive at your own conviction, your personal conviction about how much to give, who to give it to, and how to give it. And that's between you and God. There is no one right answer to that. The point is, you should give. Whatever the amount is, you must give. It it is your duty. It is your obligation. It's also your privilege. And that's another question that I was asked that I'm kind of going to fold into this question. Someone asked me, what investments on earth translate into the best returns in heaven? There's your answer. I, I love this question. What can you do with your money now so that it's paying dividends for eternity? Well, the Bible tells you you don't get to take any of your money with you. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. None of it goes with you, but you can send it all ahead of you. Whatever money you take in this life and give to the poor, to the church, and to world missions, you are sending ahead of you to pay dividends for all of eternity. So actually, giving to the poor is not really an obligation. It's actually a blessing. It's a privilege. Every dollar you give, you are investing in your eternal account with the Lord. Okay, so that needs to be our way of thinking about it. We give to the poor not because they're worthy, but because God loves us and has commanded us to share that love with those in need. So poverty. Okay, next question. How do we participate in racial reconciliation? Michael asked that question. Great question. Another hard one. (laughs) Racial reconciliation is very old. Or racial animosity, rather, the opposite, is very old. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 10, in the Tower of Babel. When God divided humanity into different races and language groups, we began to fight with one another, and we still do today. Racial animosity is such a big problem that we're told in the Bible it's not going to be fixed until Jesus comes back. It's too big a problem for us to fix. Only Jesus can do that. So that begs the question, so why should we bother? 
If we can't fix racial animosity, why even try? Well, the reason that we try is because the Bible tells us that Jesus died to make one family of all people. The Bible tells us that that we we believe that Jesus suffered and died on the cross to make one family of all races, Jew and Gentile and Samaritan, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, all races, Jesus wants one family. And so we're told in Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We must participate in racial reconciliation because we believe in this, we believe in the gospel. We believe that Jesus has done this. We are denying the power of the gospel when we choose not to participate in racial reconciliation. So Christians have to participate. And in fact, not only should we participate, we should be leading the charge. Out of all people on earth, the people who actually believe that there is one Father, one Savior, one church, we ought to be the ones leading the charge in this world towards reconciliation of all races. Now, the challenge is what do you actually do? Incredibly complex, incredibly hard thing. So what should you do? Well, man, that's at least a whole sermon. I'll just give you one most important idea. What can you actually do to help bring reconciliation of the races? James chapter 1. Be slow to speak and quick to hear. Learn to listen. Take the time to listen to, to individuals and groups who are not like you. Listen to their experiences. Learn their stories. Hear their hopes and their pain, their struggles and their dreams. Spend time listening, and that will help you to be helpful when you actually open your mouth. Good thing is, is you have a chance to listen tomorrow night here at Southwood. I want to invite all of you to come join us in the foyer as we celebrate Martin Luther King Day together. Tomorrow night, 6 to 8 p.m., we're going to gather in the foyer and we're going to read his letters from the Birmingham jail. It's, it's incredibly relevant. Even though it was written a while ago, it might as well have been written five minutes ago. It speaks powerfully to us as a church. It's both convicting and encouraging. And we're going to read it and we're going to talk to one another and encourage one another. We're going to listen together because that's the first and most important step to bringing reconciliation. So that's what our job is. We can't fix it all, but we must be involved in bringing reconciliation between races. Next question. Butch asked, how do we as Christians deal with the trend of fake news on social media? So little survey of hands. How many of you have seen a friend or relative forward or post a fake news story on Facebook? I'm surprised it's that few. It's everywhere. So much fake news. There's actually articles. There are people making tens of thousands of dollars a month by writing fake news stories that drive clickbait. Tons of money in that. Okay, so what is our response? Well, I'm going to make this one short. We believe in a God of absolute truth. Therefore, we as followers of a God of absolute truth are morally responsible to promote only that which is absolutely true. As followers of Christ, we are not allowed to traffic in deception. We must traffic in truth. It tells us in Ephesians 4, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. 
We are morally obligated to promote only that which is true. Now, that begs the question, how do you actually do that? Because there is so much fake news out there. What verse am I going to go to? James chapter 1. Be slow to speak, slow to push the forward button, slow to push the reply button. Be quick to hear. When it comes to fake news, I beg of you that you would take some time. Just, just pause for a little bit when that story, when it comes across in an email or on Facebook or Twitter, just stop for a second. Take some time to check your sources. Okay, look into the data. Is this legitimate? Look it up on Snopes.com to see if it's been debunked. Check with the major news services out there, AP, Reuters. There's a lot of different great news sources and compare them. You can look at lots of different news sources really quickly on the internet and see, is anyone picking this up? If none of them are picking it up, no major news outlets on the left or the right, maybe this isn't legit. Okay, so check your sources, check the story, and then I encourage you, just hit pause for a little bit because fake news has a short shelf life. It doesn't take long before somebody's going to either validate it or, rep- or, or repudiate it. Okay, so just wait for a little while and see what happens with that story. Okay, so don't ever traffic in deception. Don't, don't promote false stories. What do you do, though, with that friend or relative who keeps posting it or sending it to you by email? I would actually encourage you to lovingly confront them. You're not doing anyone a service by allowing them to live in deception. Challenge them. No, this is, this is going to hurt you. It's going to hurt other people. We believe in a God of absolute truth, so we must traffic only in truth. Next question on politics. Many of us who are more politically liberal feel alienated in the church. Can large evangelical churches in the South be a home for liberally minded Christians? My answer is yes. Absolutely. Especially at Grace Bible Church. We as a church are committed to promoting unity when it comes to theological essentials like the deity of Christ. But charity when it comes to politics. We, op- we welcome with open arms anyone who confesses Christ as God's son, regardless of your political affiliations. You can be Republican, you can be Democrat, you can be independent, you can be conservative, you can be liberal. You are all welcome here. All of you. And if it feels otherwise, that means something is wrong. We need to be told. Please don't give up on us. Come talk to me personally if you feel that you are not welcome here because either we have done something wrong or there's been a misunderstanding because you are absolutely welcome here. We are a church that opens our arms to people from every political persuasion. You would actually be pretty surprised to find out how many liberal Christians there are in the pews and pulpits of Grace Bible Church, and politically speaking. All right. That's enough politics. We're going to stand and stretch for a minute. I don't have any jokes for this sermon, so we got to do something else to help you wake up. Stand up. Let's stretch. we got a long ways to go. Let's keep going. got a long ways to go. How to live a godly life. Let's talk about some spiritual life issues. We'll start out with one that I got from a couple different parents. Is it okay for Christians to participate in Halloween with all of its evil overtones? Great question. A little late. You already had to make that decision, but we'll, we'll talk about it now. Well, here's the deal. Here's the reality. Got to recognize there is no holiday we celebrate in America that is free of controversy. 
Every holiday has bad stuff somewhere in its past. Did you know the Puritans actually outlawed Christmas? This is the actual notice they put up. It was forbidden to celebrate Christmas. Why? Because they thought it was a satanic ritual to celebrate Christmas. A lot of Christians won't celebrate Easter. Why? Because of the whole Easter egg thing and the fact that, historically speaking, it seems like maybe it comes from pagan fertility rites. Every holiday on the calendar has bad stuff that you can associate with it. So here's my challenge. Worry a little bit less about whether you should celebrate it and think more about how you and your kids could celebrate it in a positive way. See, every holiday is an opportunity for you. Here's an example. Halloween, if you choose, and you don't have to celebrate Halloween. Jesus died to make you free of everything. So you can choose what holidays you want to celebrate and not. But if you choose to celebrate it, then how about you and your kids think about Halloween as an opportunity? For what? For evangelism. Because guess what the great thing about is at Halloween? Everyone comes to your door. Literally, your whole neighborhood comes to your door. And then you get to dress up your kids and take them house to house. And you're meeting your neighbors who you may not see for 364 days of the year. But on this one magical night, they come to you. You get to meet them, shake hands. You can begin to build a relationship that leads to getting to talk about Jesus. So whatever you decide to do, the key question is, it's about how you celebrate it. Every holiday can be an opportunity for you and for your family. Next question I was asked. Great question. Josh asked me, is there a difference between struggling with a specific sin and having an unrepentant heart? I've actually been asked that question a lot. And the answer is yes. Here's the the primary text we're going to turn to. 1 John chapter 1. It tells us in verse 8, if we Christians say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us fact is all of us sin. I think all of us sin every day. We are going to sin, but that's okay because of the next verse. Verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. When Christians sin, all we need to do is confess that sin to God. And confess is just a fancy word for admit. Just admit to God, I was wrong for doing that. That was wrong. That was sin. I'm sorry I did that. Please forgive me, God. That's what it means to confess your sin. And the moment you confess that sin, God cleanses you of all your sin and and he makes you righteous in his sight. So confession is instantaneous. There's no guilt, no shame after confession. But what if you choose not to confess your sin? Well, then you are doing what that question asked. You're choosing to have an unrepentant heart. Unrepentant heart means you're not willing to say you were wrong. You're not willing to admit that you sinned. You don't care about it. What happens then? Well, it tells us earlier in that chapter, if we Christians say that we have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness, that is walk in unrepentant sin, we're choosing to live in sin without admitting it to God, we lie and do not practice the truth. And the point that John is making to us is that if we as Christians sin, we're not going to lose our salvation because salvation is by faith alone in Jesus alone. And once saved, always saved. But when we choose to live in unrepentant sin, it creates distance between us and God. We no longer have close fellowship. We're no longer near God, experiencing his love and power and peace in our lives. Sin is like a, a relational barrier between us and God. Easiest way to think about this is to think about it like a family. You're part of a family. Your parents um, brought you into this world. You became their child the moment you were conceived. 
Well, so it is in the Christian life. The moment you trusted in Jesus, you became a child of God. God became your father and nothing can change that. Just like nothing you could do could make you not a child of your parents. You will always be their child, even if you rebel. But if you rebel against your parents, it's not going to be real comfortable around the dinner table at night. There's going to be this estrangement, this tension between you and them because you're walking in sin. You're walking in disobedience. And at some point, they're going to have to discipline you. So it is in your religious life. God is your father and always will be. But if you choose to walk in unrepentant sin, now we all sin, but you're not willing to repent of it, not willing to confess it to God, then it's going to get uncomfortable around the dinner table with God. There's going to feel like this distance between you and him. You're going to feel fear. You're going to feel doubt. You're going to feel a lack of power and joy in your life. And eventually, he's going to have to work to discipline you to bring you back to truth and obedience. Okay, so that's how we should think about sin in our lives When you sin, confess it, God cleanses you immediately. Next question, very hard one. The Bible is clear that homosexual behavior is sin, but some people are born gay. Why would a loving God allow that to happen? To obey, they must deny themselves earthly love and live a celibate life. That seems incredibly harsh. Well, this is a a really challenging question. It's going to force us to define our terms carefully. We have not always done that in the past, so let me define some terms. When we say that a person is gay, we're talking about same-sex attraction. That person is attracted to someone else of the same gender. And, And the heart of this question is right. There are many possible causes for same sex attraction, and genetics is one of them. It is possible, in a sense, to be born gay if by that you mean you have a genetic proclivity towards being attracted to someone of the same gender. Yes, genetics can influence and be behind same sex attraction, but here's the key that we want to make sure we're clear on that same sex attraction is not sin. We are not held responsible for our attractions because you cannot control who or what you are attracted to. God does not hold you responsible for your temptations. Wherever they come from, whether it's genetics or life experiences or upbringing, you're not held responsible for your attractions or your temptations. You're held responsible for your choices. And that's, again, where this question is right. Homosexual behavior is sin. The moment you choose to act upon that same-sex attraction, then it becomes sin. we got to be clear about that because we have heaped so much guilt and shame on people who were not guilty simply because they were attracted to someone of the same gender. No, there's not shame in that. There's not guilt in that. It doesn't become sin until you act upon that attraction. Okay, but that does beg the question. Why would God create a universe where it was possible for people to be born with a desire that if they act on that desire, it will be sin? Well, sadly, that describes every single one of us in this room. We are all born with innate genetic bents towards sins. And for each of us, it's going to be a unique list. I had to write my list down because it's long. What are my genetic bents towards sin? Well, I'm definitely bent towards pride, selfishness, heterosexual adultery, doubt, and depression, to name a few. Those are in my genes. I did not choose any of those struggles. They've all been painful. I wish they would all go away, but they don't. They're just there. They're in my life, and it's important for me to remember that they're not my fault, I go see counselors for my depression. I take medicine every day. I may take it for the rest of my life, every day. 
And I am not guilty for that. I didn't choose it. It's not my fault. It is simply a fact of living in a fallen world and a broken body. And so we have to be clear with one another that these genetic bents, they're they're not our fault. I don't know why these things are in our lives. I would never have chosen depression in my life. I wish desperately it would go away. I don't know why God has brought this into my life. I know that ultimately you can say, well, all brokenness in this world is a result of Adam and Eve's choice to sin. It all goes back to them. But I don't know why God chose to push go on a universe where all of that was possible. What I do know is that God promised me in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that he is good enough and powerful enough and wise enough to work all things in my life, even the awful, painful, messy things for good. Don't know how he's going to do that with my depression. Doesn't feel good to me. May not be till heaven that I look down and see, oh, well, that's what was going on. I don't know how he's going to do that with your same-sex attraction. I don't know whether he's going to fix it in this life. I don't know if it's going to remain your whole life. I don't know what he's going to do. I just know he has promised to use it for good. That's the hope we have in life. A lot of awful stuff that comes to us genetically. And yet God in his grace promises to take all of that genetic mess and use it for good. That we might not see in this life, but that will be proven true. So if... You are a person who, who was born gay. You do have a genetic bent toward same-sex attraction. I want to make sure that you know that God loves you and is not ashamed of you. You are not guilty for your same-sex attractions. God is with you. He grieves with you in the struggle. He stands by you every day, strengthening you and helping you to walk with him in purity and faithfulness. And he will be with you throughout this life. And best of all, somehow... He's going to use this struggle for great good in your life, even if you don't know how until you see him. Next question that was sent to me, again, another anonymous one. Can you give us a theological take on anxiety and panic attacks? How do you deal with the guilt and shame these generate? Here's the most important thing I'm going to say on this issue. If you deal with anxiety or panic attacks or depression or bipolarity, I want you to know without doubt that there is no guilt and no shame in any of that. There is no guilt in struggling with anxiety. There is no shame when you have a panic attack. You don't get to control those things. You didn't ask for those to be part of your life. No, those are medical conditions, just like my depression. I'm not guilty when I struggle with depression. I didn't get to control that in my life. It's a disease like any other. And and it's important to recognize, when you find out that a friend has cancer, do you blame them for that? Do you want them to feel guilty for their cancer? Of course not. You would never do that. So why do we do that with mental diseases? like anxiety and depression and bipolarity? Why do we make people feel good? There's no guilt in that. There's no shame in that. It's just a disease like any other. And so how do you treat a disease? Well, as followers of God, I encourage you to use every tool God puts at your disposal. So that's going to include spiritual disciplines. You treat anxiety, panic attacks, depression, partly by reading the Bible, praying, memorizing scripture, seeking out Christian fellowship and worship. You treat it by practicing physical disciplines like getting a good night's sleep, eating well, exercising. And you treat it with medical help. You go talk to doctors, you talk to counselors, you take medicine. 
All of these tools together can help you to walk in greater and greater victory. But what Satan is going to do is to try to make you feel guilty for the struggle because then he wins before it ever begins. Satan loves to make you feel shame and guilt for something that's not your fault. So when you feel that shame or guilt for anxiety or depression or panic attacks or bipolarity, you remind yourself, no, God loves you. He's not ashamed of you and you shouldn't be ashamed either. It was, a, it was a really important day in my life. I feel like I'm still trying to believe this. There was this moment when I realized that my shame and embarrassment at my depression was about my pride and not about God's opinion of me. That's my pride. I didn't want to be dependent on people's help. I didn't want to be dependent on a medicine I have to take every day. That's nothing more than pride. That's not God talking to me. God's not ashamed of my depression, and neither should I be. So let's make sure we're clear on that. All right. Wider topic. People in the Bible, a little Bible trivia. I have very little time, and so we're going to do this. I'm going to try to do each of these next two questions in 30 seconds each. Let's see if we can do it. What's happening in Exodus 4? One minute God is happy with Moses. The next God is coming to kill Moses, and his wife starts yelling and throwing things. And if you know the story, you know she's not throwing things. She circumcises her son and throws a foreskin at Moses' feet. What in the world is going on in that weird story? Here's the deal. Moses is a believer. He is saved by faith in God, just like you are, and yet God cares about obedience. And when his people do not obey, God disciplines us, and divine discipline can be as severe as physical death. Moses was under an Old Testament law that commanded parents to circumcise their little boys as a sign of of belonging to God's covenant community. Moses disobeyed. God cared about that disobedience, and so God shows up in Exodus 4 to put Moses to death. If, If Zipporah wasn't so quick with a knife, Moses would have died and gone to heaven, but fortunately, she was very fast, and Moses's life was preserved. Now, the lesson of that instant, of that, of that incident is God cares about the obedience of his people. Discipline is painful, so don't give in to sin. Next question, Melchizedek. Please explain. So, <laughs> I love Melchizedek. I just call him Melky because the guy's so great. He shows up in Genesis chapter 14 for four verses and then he disappears. Very little about him from that point on. Here's what we know. He was the king of a city called Salem. He was also a priest. He worshiped the one true God. He lived in the time of Abraham, 2000 BC. Abraham looked up to him as an incredibly godly guy, as a priestly guy. There's very little, just four verses and then he disappears. But because of the fact that he was both a king and a priest, He ends up foreshadowing Jesus, who is also the only other king and priest. So that's why he comes up later in the Bible. But here's what the story of Melchizedek says to you. This is what I want you to walk away with. Not all the crazy stuff, although it's interesting. The key about Melchizedek is that he proves that you have a God who is gracious. Here's why. 2000 BC, God had a choice to make. God had to choose one man out of all humans on the planet Earth, to become the forefather of God's chosen people, the Jewish people through whom would come the Christ, which would become the source of all blessing for the whole world. So pretty significant choice. If you were God, who would you have chosen? Would you have chosen Abraham, who was not a king, who was not a priest, 
who was actually an idolater when God met him. He worshiped other gods. Or would you choose Melchizedek, who was a king, who was a priest of the one true God, and who was far more righteous than Abraham? Of course, we would choose Melchizedek. God does not. He chose Abraham. Why? Because he is a God who chooses unworthy people like Abraham, like you, like me. Melchizedek is about the grace of God. Okay, next section. Let's talk about theology. This is our last section for the morning. Two questions for you in theology. They're both significant, deep, meaningful questions. First question I got from Iana is the age of accountability a real thing? And if so, how do we know? The idea of a baby going to hell because he or she didn't possess the ability to believe the gospel is heartbreaking. To be honest, the thought of anyone going to hell is heartbreaking. But it is particularly troubling that God would sentence to hell a baby because that baby didn't trust in Jesus. But that baby was never able, never had the mental capacity to trust in Jesus. And so theologians and pastors like me, we have conjectured this thing called the age of accountability to explain this. We would say that until a person reaches some age of accountability, when they become morally capable of trusting in Jesus, they are not held accountable to God. So the baby who dies goes to heaven. Well, that's a wonderful belief, but how do we prove it? We turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1. I'm just going to read it to you. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, here's the kicker, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. So Paul, let's follow his chain of thought. He says the wrath of God is coming against human beings. Why? Because humans see God's fingerprints on creation. We see his existence, we see proof of his power and wisdom and creation, and we reject it. Whether we hear the gospel or not, doesn't matter whether we hear about Jesus, we see God in creation, and humans say, no, I don't want that, and the result is the wrath of God. Well, at what point does a baby say no to the revelation of God in creation? Never. That baby doesn't reach the the intellectual capacity to see God's fingerprints on creation and reach a decision whether or not to worship that God or not. And so we believe that babies and, and young children who die go straight to heaven. We believe the same thing about those who are severely mentally handicapped. Anyone who cannot have Romans 1, 18 through 21 said of them goes straight to heaven when they die. Why? Because they're innocent? No. We're all born sinners. Why? Well, because Jesus died for all sin, past, present, and future. So the key question you ask yourself is, to whom does God accredit the sacrifice of Jesus? And the Bible says, to everyone who does not choose to reject God. Baby doesn't get a chance to either choose for God or against God. And so the baby, by grace, is granted the sacrifice of Jesus. There, by the blood of Christ, just like you, that baby will be in heaven. That's how we put together age of accountability. Final question, and the one that's nearest and dearest to my heart, most significant to me. Why believe in Christianity? I got this question three times, three different ways. Why follow a God who forces you to believe or you'll go to hell? If God is good, why do so many bad things happen? 
How can you believe a religion full of impossible stories like creation, the flood, Jonah, and the fish? Why do we believe in Christianity? Well, I'm going to talk about why I believe in Christianity. Let's start with the easy one up there. Creation and the flood. I talked about Genesis three years ago in a sermon series, and I'd encourage you to go online and listen to the sermon on creation and the sermon on the flood. And in those sermons, you will find out that actually there's a wide range of possible interpretations of the text. And some of those interpretive options, including the ones I hold to, line up well with the findings of science. Okay, so that's, you don't have to choose between science and Genesis. You'll, you can put those together. So you can listen to those sermons and learn more. So that one's easy. Um, Joan and the fish, actually easy too, because you may never have thought about this. You believe in a God who created the universe out of nothing in an instant. Countless billions of stars and galaxies and all that. So for that kind of God, it's really not hard to create a mile-long fish with a thousand-foot, square-foot penthouse just for Jonah. So that's how I put it together. I don't know how he stayed alive in a fish. I just know a God who could have created my house with fins on it for Jonah. Never existed before, never exists afterwards. Just one special supernatural fish for this guy. That one's easy. Now the hard questions. What do you do about hell? I don't know. Hell troubles me greatly. Keeps me up at night. I grieve over it. What do you do about all the evil in the world? I don't know. I don't know why God pushed go on a universe so full of evil where hell is so prevalent. I don't know what to do with that. But here's what I do know. I know that a guy walked out of an empty tomb 2,000 years ago. And I know that if he walked out of an empty tomb after being put to death, then he has conquered death, which I never have. And so I can trust him with all the things I don't understand. And ultimately, that's why I'm a Christian. There is a ton about Christianity that does not make sense to me. There's even a lot about Christianity that I just frankly do not like. But I believe a man walked out of a tomb 2,000 years ago He beat death, and because of that, I can trust that man with all the things I don't know and all the things that keep me up at night. The good news is God has given us a ton of evidence for that watershed event. Because if the resurrection happened, then it's all true. That's game over if he walked out of the tomb. So I have written an article with the five most significant reasons from history why Jesus actually rose from the dead. You can get it on our website. Click on resources, frequently asked questions. How do we know Jesus actually rose from the dead? I mean, I'm I'm more of an engineer, more of a scientist, more of a a skeptic and a doubter. And yet these five arguments have actually convinced me to trust in Jesus despite all the things I cannot explain. I actually, I am so persuaded by these historical arguments that I actually think it is easier to believe Jesus rose from the dead than that he didn't. So hard to explain these lines of argument. So I encourage you to read that. If Jesus actually walked out of the tomb 2,000 years ago and beat death, and this is the most important thing I'll say this morning, this is really what it's all leading to. Here's the deal. Q&A sermon. What a joke. It makes it sound like Christianity is something where if you ask the question, Blake will give you an answer. As if somehow we could distill Christianity into a bunch of simple answers that humans like us could explain. There is so much about our faith I do not understand. I am sure there's more I don't know than that I do know. There's so much I do not see yet. 
The one thing I see as a man walking out of a tomb 2,000 years ago conquering death. And that's what I cling to. And that's what I hope you will cling to. I haven't come anywhere close to answering in sufficient depth the kind of questions I was asked this week. I don't know how to put all the pieces together, but I know the one who does. I know that he conquered sin and death 2,000 years ago, and because of that, I know we can trust him. So I'd encourage you, look at the evidence. Trust in Jesus. Now, it's 14 questions out of well over 30 I got. I'll try to answer more on a podcast, audio, or video, if, if Michael can help me do it this week. Um, so you can, if you want to get those additional answers, you can follow me. That's my Twitter and Facebook handles there, and I'll, I'll post it all there and put it up on the website for you. Um, one last thing as you're leaving today, as, as great as it is to have you here, I'm happy you guys are here. It would have been sad to get up here and no one was here. I love that you're here, but this is not the primary place where you're really going to grow in your faith. You're really going to grow when you join with other believers in a small group. We want to get you connected here at Grace so you can grow as a follower of Jesus. And so we have tables under the portico as you leave this morning right outside where you can find information on all the small groups and Sunday school classes and all the great things that we offer for you to get connected with other believers so you can walk with Jesus, which is ultimately what matters most. Okay, let's, let's go to the Lord, and I want to pray for you guys. Lord, we just thank you so much that you are a God of truth. You are a God of revelation. You have not left us groping around in the dark. You have revealed truth to us. And even though we wish we knew a whole lot more than we do, we know that we have received from you the truth that we need to make it in life. And we praise you for that because we know Jesus, and that's what matters most, God. And And I pray for each one of us that when we get caught up in questions that we cannot answer, whether they're about politics or spiritual life or parenting or theology or biblical trivia, whatever it is, God, when when we get caught up in these questions that we cannot answer, I pray that you would help us to remember your son. There's so much that we don't know and yet we know him who walked out of an empty tomb 2,000 years ago and because he did, we have hope. And we celebrate that. And, and we pray, Heavenly Father, that in a world that is so caught up in these political questions and these theological questions and all of these questions, we pray, God, that we would make it our ambition to tell them about Jesus, to tell them that there's hope, that in the midst of all of these intractable problems, that there is hope possible through faith in Jesus Christ, that there is love, that there is joy that they can have that can transcend all doubt and fear. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would follow Jesus closely and that we would tell many about him. We thank you for your son. He is worthy. In his name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week for Matthew.